0: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Late in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet says, quote, Let us know our indiscretion sometimes serves us well, when our deep plots do pall, and that should teach us. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will, end quote. Hamlet's explanation seems to attribute spiritual purpose to moments of wild coincidence or reckless intuition when, through some stroke of luck, we just happen to have our murdered king father's signet ring at hand. I am excited to have Jane Huang Degenhart onto the podcast to discuss this passage and much more about fortune in both a metaphysical and financial sense. Jane is Professor and Graduate Program Director of the English Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's the author of the 2010 monograph, Islamic Conversion and Christian Resistance on the Early Modern Stage from Edinburgh University Press, and is the co-editor of the literary journal English Literary Renaissance. Today we are discussing Jane's new book titled Globalizing Fortune on the Early Modern Stage, which was published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. Globalizing Fortune on the Early Modern Stage synthesizes a wide range of sources on luck, providence, opportunity, risk, and the ideological contest of mercantilism and capitalism, and offers brilliant new readings of plays such as Hamlet, The Merchant of Venice, Dr. Faustus, and Fair Maid of the West. In the interest of full disclosure, I should also inform listeners that Jane is my dissertation chair, and I can attest that she is a wonderful mentor and teacher, in addition to being a brilliant scholar and writer. Welcome to the podcast, Jane.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John. Such a pleasure to talk to you about the book.
0: I want to begin by congratulating you on the publication of Globalizing Fortune on the Early Modern Stage. Um, what, What was the process like?
1: Well, the process of writing that book was one that was a long process. It was one that started way before words actually found their way onto the page. I had these interests in the concept of fortune. I had uh, many uh, moments of observation, sometimes more conscious than others, where I was picking up on the ubiquity of the concept in the plays of the period and in other writings of the period, and there was always something in me that wanted to understand more. Why was this concept so intensely charged in the period? And especially during a time when, uh, after the Protestant Reformation, uh, the English church basically was... Um, outlawed the concept of fortune, uh, the, the, um, the church uh, decreed that everything was controlled in the world by divine providence. So, and so nothing could happen without God's will. And if that's the case, you know, why is it that this pagan holdover, this concept of fortune was still uh, having so much sway over people's lives? Why was it being taken up in, in so many ways during the period and grappled with?
0: so this calvinist uh attack on fortune uh interacted in complex ways with emerging imperial imaginations is is that right
1: yeah i would say so and and not just imperial but intersecting with uh england's uh kind of imperial aspirations at the time uh, were uh, commercial, commercially driven motivations. And of course, um, this was exactly the time in, in the late 1500s, uh, say when the, the word fortune itself was starting to take on uh, the meaning that we now are more familiar with, uh, the idea of, of fortune referring to wealth or to uh, kind of um, money and monetary gains. Um Prior to that, uh, the the term really just referred to the ideas of chance or luck or HAP, uh, which also still remain um, familiar to us, but it's, it's the kind of coming together of those concepts, an economic concept of fortune with a metaphysical understanding of fortune as one that has to do with why do things happen in the world.
0: One of the things I learned from your book were these competing visual representations of fortune. Can you describe them for us?
1: Yeah, well, I think that one of the big shifts that happens in the early modern period is one that is charted through uh, an iconographical shift that takes place. So in the Middle Ages, there was very popular... Uh, image of fortune which was the the wheel of fortune which was spun by this blindfolded goddess and that's an image that we're probably still familiar many of us may be still familiar with today there was actually a popular game show called the wheel of fortune that was all which I, i'm probably mm-hmm. dating myself but it my still is. Heard, yeah like in the 1980s you probably were it, you're it, younger
0: it's, still it. it's still um uh, still, yeah, okay. uh,
1: that's funny. I didn't realize that. Uh, so yeah, you sort of see how this idea of the wheel of fortune has, ha, you know, really stuck with us. Um, and what is characteristic about it is that it's completely arbitrary, you know, with the spin of the wheel, um, anything can happen. Prince turns into pauper, pauper turns into prince. It has nothing to do with whether they deserve Uh, this or not. Um, You can't see it coming. You can't do anything to stop where the wheel is going to land. And so along with this in the medieval period, uh, religious and philosophical kinds of teachings um, were kind of going along the lines of, well, don't engage with this bad thing called fortune because it's just going to turn on you and it's better just not to even want these things or to um, put a lot of uh, kind of effort and energy into pursuing earthly kinds of fortunes like wealth or status or fame Uh, rather you should have your sights set on the more eternal rewards of the afterlife you know you get your big reward in heaven by leading a good life Um, so that was that philosophy of fortune and we see something really radically shifting and I'm being a little I'm probably being a little like bluntly schematic about this historical shift just for the sake of clarity but there you know there is some truth to it that we start to see in the early modern period uh, a new kind of philosophy of fortune which marries fortune with opportunism and it's not necessarily sinful or greedy opportunism. Uh, There comes to be a way in which human beings uh, can go after fortune and can have influence over uh, the outcomes in their lives. Um, And this is not necessarily uh, something that makes you a bad person to engage with fortune in this way. And The underlying uh, kind of uh, economic and imperial transformations that were helping to um, bring this about had to do with early capitalism and uh, England's Um, engagements in global trade and their aspirations to expand their commercial presence on a global scale and their aspirations to build, in fact, a a commercial empire um, which was, they were still quite a ways away from it, but they were beginning to see uh, this possibility on the horizon for themselves and so working hand-in-hand hand with these kinds of economic and imperial ideological uh, developments and transformations, we start to see shifts in uh, the, metaph- the metaphysical meaning as well as the ethical uh, kinds of implications that were associated uh, with pursuits of fortune at the time and, and the mechanistic uh, operation of fortune itself was coming to be understood in new ways. So. Replacing this image of uh, the the wheel of fortune being spun by the blind goddess, Fortuna, we start to see a new visual tradition of fortune being depicted in seafaring images. And in these images, which became quite popularized through uh, emblem books of the period, we see fortune uh, depicted as a ship at sea and and the figure of Fortuna um, serving as the mast of a ship. And often her image was conflated with another iconographical tradition, that of Acasia or occasion, which represented opportunity. And characteristically, that figure, uh, which was kind of a sexualized uh, naked woman with a long forelock of hair coming out from her forehead, and then a bald head in the back, and she passed you by, and she was um, seducing you and inviting you, calling out to you to grab her by the forelock before she passed. Um, so the message there was um, to go up for it and to seize that opportunity. And in fact, you were a fool if you let it pass you by. Um, so it was very different from the philosophy of Boethius, you know, which was, you know, don't engage with fortune. Um, So the other thing about these seafaring images was that they afforded a a kind of unprecedented um, role for human uh, operants. so that uh, often you would get featured in the helm of the boat, um, someone, a human being sitting there, a passenger who was helping to steer the boat forward. And in that way, uh, the implication was that humans could in some ways um, dictate um, their own fortunes, or if not dictate, at least they had some ability to respond to the, you know, say conditions of weather or, or storms or, you know, shipwreck, what have you, the different things that, uh, you know, would happen while you were out on the open seas, um, or that could happen, there was the ability that you could respond and that you could use your discretion, that you could steer the boat, that you could wait something out, that you could, you know, take action quickly if you needed to, um, whatever it was, right? Um, And so that elevated um, the role that human beings could be understood to play in in the course of fortune in the world. And of course, it's worth mentioning that at the time, Uh, seafaring actually was a very dangerous enterprise. You know, we still hear of accidents at sea, but um, in the late 1500s, early 1600s, there was a kind of much more intense um, awareness of uh, the possibility of bad fortune at sea, the possibility of disaster, of shipwreck of piracy, of getting lost, of getting thrown off course, um, you know, of, of dismal failures. Um, you know, we, we see this with the opening um, uh, of a Mer- The Merchant of Venice. Um, that's, you know, the very uh, kind of condition that sets off, you know, the the alarm in the play that something tragic might happen is that um, Antonio ships, um, have you know the reports come back that they have failed at sea.
0: That leads really well into my next question, which is that theater makers um, had a strong intuition that this transition in the meeting of, of fortune was taking place. Uh, you focus on theater on uh, the decades on either side of the turn of the 16th century, 1590 to 1610. And you um, remark that uh, Shakespeare uses fortune about five hundred times. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah, the, there's that that word just shows up all over the plays of Shakespeare and, and his contemporaries in the period and. In fact, there were also a number of uh, so-called adventure plays, uh, which were plays that incorporated elements of romance and that were often stories that were set at sea or set partly at sea and that involved um, long-distance travel and sometimes um, commercial, risky commercial investments and uh, intercultural encounters and, um, you know, all sorts of adventures that took place out on the high seas. Um, so you can see how, um, the, the theater was really, really interested in the kind of thematic potential of fortune, the thematic potential of, of adventure. Um, and, uh, in other ways as well, the theater itself as a kind of risky new commercial venture uh, really identified with uh, the identified with fortune and um, had a kind of vested interest in kind of understanding the mechanism of fortune and uh, understanding, you know, what could be done or what might be done in order to, you um, Uh, in order to arrive at a fortunate outcome, which of course they wanted to do because they wanted to sell tickets and be a profitable profitable enterprise um, themselves. But they also understood themselves to be uh, not not pursuing fortune in, in, in immoral ways. In fact, I think the theater kind of took it upon itself and playwrights took it upon themselves to help guide audiences uh, in the Pursuits of Fortune. And and we see a number of plays that are quite interested in exposing potentially greedy or self-serving motives behind uh, opportunistic Pursuits of Fortune. So plays like Decker's Old Fortunatus uh, or um, Dr. Faustus, uh, both of those are plays that I discuss in the book. Um, And in my coda, I speak you know, a bit more at length, uh, quite explicitly about, um, some of the ways that, uh, uh, the kind of opportunism that we see, uh, emerging in the new philosophy of fortune in the early modern period, um, really goes hand in hand with some of the worst exploitations of capitalism, uh, that we are living with in our world today. Um, and the legacies of, um, exploitation of of people and and labor and and lands um, that became justifiable um, because of the kind of, because of this opportunism, or at least partly because of this kind of philosophy uh, that made such opportunism um, seem morally acceptable and and more than morally acceptable, uh, you know, something that was um, uh, serving um, God and serving the English nation. At the time. Um, but in other ways, um, it, it's important to recognize that the, the stage was kind of in cahoots with uh, fortune driven enterprises uh, like overseas venturing. And um, they had a vested interest in uh, figuring out ways that fortune could be pursued in moral ways, in ways that were um reconcilable with the idea of divine providence and the idea of God's will, um, you know, the idea that God, you know, was in favor of and we and humans could work in concert with God um, in in terms of certain kinds of pursuits, uh, such as the the pursuit of English empire.
0: Um, I I do want to backtrack a little bit and um, talk about the preface for Globalizing Portion. In the preface, you reflect on your own personal relationship with fortune. You share the circumstances of your early life. You were born in South Korea and then adopted at a few months old by a family in New York. Can you tell us what the journey was like in trying to recover the circumstances of your adoption? Could you share with us what the stakes for you are in contextualizing your scholarly work with the personal
1: yeah well for me i would say writing this personal preface was probably both the easiest and the hardest part about writing this book it was a really risky thing for me to do and it took me a while to work myself up to actually deciding to do it and just going for it it was the first time i had ever published any kind of personal writing of this nature Um, But at the same time, I think that the division between personal and critical writing is probably more artificial than we tend to recognize. And in fact, when I got going with it, it flowed very easily. I wrote it in a matter of, I don't know, less than an hour. It just kind of flowed out of me, maybe, um, which was quite different from some of the most of the other uh, sections of the book that I wrote. And I think... um, I I believe that all scholarly books begin with some nugget of personal interest. Certainly, that uh, has always been the case for me. My first book was about conversion, which is a topic that also ties in with uh, similar kinds of preoccupations about my own identity. And as all scholars know, it takes a long time to write a book. So I think that it's really important that there's some underlying compulsion there that fuels such a big undertaking, some deep questions that we spend our lives chewing on in one way or another, we're thinking about these questions in in other registers, in other uh, kinds of um, spheres of our life, uh, interpersonally, but also in our scholarship, we're, we're thinking about these questions too, I think. To give you some of the basics of my personal story, I was adopted from South Korea, as you mentioned, around the age of about six months by an American family. And very little is known about my life in Korea prior to my adoption. Because there's no record of my birth or biological parents, I was given a manufactured Korean name and birth date. And of course, when I was adopted, I was then given a new name and a whole new identity. So in an instance, I had a new nationality, a new native language, new family history, likely a new religion. You could say that I became a different person overnight. And this new life I was given was seemingly just a matter of chance or luck. I could have wound up being adopted by any number of families and grown up in entirely different circumstances. My name could have been something else. I could have been Gertrude or... Matilda. (laughs) But instead, I was named Jane. So of course, I'm fascinated by how my very being in the world was so radically and and enduringly altered by this thing we call fortune. And in my case, the circumstances where and how I was found or why I was given up are completely murky. In fact, when I started looking into it, I discovered not only a very skeletal account of my history, but also some crucial contradictions in the records of my early life, as well as some evidence that information had been willfully obscured or fabricated. So a big thing I've had to grapple with and come to terms with is the essential unknowability of my origins, the fact that it might be impossible to ever recover my roots and to know the truth of my identity at birth. You asked about my journey to try to recover information about my adoption. And in many ways, it was a frustrating and painful journey for me. But this confrontation with unknowability and impossibility also got me thinking about whether there's any kind of unexpected potential to be found in these concepts. Is there a way they can be resources for potential rather than just dead ends and sources of frustration and disappointment? One of the things that fascinates me about fortune that became clear to me over the course of writing the book is that it's really about the problem of dealing with the unknown. Fortune is, of course, a construction. It's not some real thing with some underlying truth about it. Rather, it's a name that we give to things that we can't understand. It's a narrative, a story that we make up to explain something that we don't understand and that is probably inherently unknowable to us. And in a sense, divine providence or fate are just different names and explanations for this same thing that is fundamentally unknowable. Early moderns were fascinated with the challenge of reconciling the unknowability of God's God's providence with what appeared to be the whims of fortune. They believed this was key to aligning their own actions with divine providence. But as you can imagine, there was always the risk of doing this in a self-serving way or else just completely getting it wrong by attributing divine meaning to random things.
0: One of my favorite aspects of Globalizing Fortune is how grounded your work is in uh, theatrical practice. Uh, In particular, you look at Pericles, a play probably co-written by Shakespeare and George Wilkins, and you ask how this play, which seems to us so awkwardly constructed and artless, is so compelling. It's a theatrical success despite um, its um, awkwardness. How does Pericles, the play, invite us to participate as an audience and to practice, and these are key words in the play, attention, patience, imagination, and supposing?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question, John. Well, Parakles is a play that has long interested me, and it's funny because it's not really, it it was one of Shakespeare's more popular plays, uh, but at the same time, it's not today one of his more popular plays. So people uh, who you ask, you know, who are not Shakespeare scholars or not English literature people, um, probably, you know, don't know very much about that play. And once you start talking about it, they don't find it all that interesting. And even that I find kind of interesting. One of the big ambitions of the play is that it sets out to represent sea travel and it takes place in a number of different settings and it represents action or in some cases stand-ins for the action of traveling in between many different places that are reached through oceanic travel. And the reason why this is striking, I think, is that the stage, and particularly the early modern stage, was not very good at realistically representing sea travel. When you think about it, that's something that film can do really well, but on the platform stage to represent the expanse of the ocean and the experience of sea travel and all of the dangers that it entails and the, the storms that uh, the characters travel through and the kinds of risks that they encounter uh, while traveling uh, through sea, just is not very easy to represent on the stage. And so that's one of the things that Pericles seems to, it's given maybe Pericles a bad name. I mean, it's one of the reasons why maybe modern audiences Uh, might think they don't like the play, uh, or there might even be kind of, you could say, flaws, uh, aesthetic, dramaturgical flaws. But I think it's actually laying bare and exposing these kinds of challenges, these so-called flaws that makes the play interesting. And in many cases, you have standing in for the action and the spectacle of of sea travel. You have the a narrator, a narrator, John Gower, who is this old author from the Middle Ages, and you know he comes out on stage and he describes using language. He narrates the action of the sea and what transpires uh, during that that the periods of travel that take place in the play. And so again, you have this kind of like discordance between the experience of like looking at this little single actor standing on the stage. And then at the same time conjuring uh, in your mind, maybe what it is that he's describing this very expansive, spectacular experience of sea travel and, and, uh, kind of weathering storms and so forth. And um, so it's that juxtaposition, I think, that's very interesting. And that's one of the things about the play that I argue helps to actually entrain audiences experientially in what it means to experience fortune patiently, to navigate fortune in a way that is mindful in a way that is discerning in a way that is attentive Uh, also what it means to exercise imagination as a playgoer and how this very process is one that is like seafaring also risky and also one that requires patience but in the end it it's one that is potentially very rewarding. And I think on a thematic level, one of the things that the play is trying to uh, represent and teach its audience has to do with the virtues of patience and the virtues of kind of riding out a storm and um, sort of maintaining faith that things will turn out well, even though you can't control the, the turns and twists of fortune that you are experiencing. Uh, at least that, that seems to be quite true for Pericles, who's the main hero of the play. I think there's other uh, counter discourses of fortune also operating in the play, for example, through Marina, who is a more active navigator of fortune. And in that case, we see how her, um, her exercise of human agency, her will, her uh, courage, her discretion, Um, her willingness to, to take risks, even when it seems, you know, there's very little chance, um, of survival or that they'll pay off. Um, you know, these things are are modeling a different course, um, in the navigation of fortune, a more active course. And I think the play is also interested in that. Um, but I think just to sum up, um, the play offers a really good example of how a just to sum up, the play offers a really good example of how dramaturgically, aesthetically, experientially, uh, the, the, the kind of um, effective experience of uh, fortune gets communicated between a play and, and then its viewing audience and how a play uh, can, through these means, uh, work to, teach its audiences um, something about what it means to watch a play and something about the, the challenges and the rewards of being a, a playgoer at this time.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a, a wonderful argument and um, a, a wonderful and interesting uh, invitation for us to inhabit early modern aesthetics, which can seem so, uh, as you said, kind of discordant with our own expectations for uh, the shape of a play. Um, I I want to turn to a a different section of that chapter and to kind of dig into your prose a little bit. Um, Let's look at a specific passage uh, in which you talk about Hamlet, Uh, and this is around page 187 of globalizing fortune. Can you read from your analysis of the play?
1: Yeah, sure. And I think this is actually a really uh, good passage, uh, one that uh, for addressing uh, kind of your earlier question when we were talking about my preface and it addresses the question of how do we act in the face of fortune when divine providence is unknowable, when we see things that seem to be signs of fortune um, and we don't exactly know understand what the meaning is that lies behind them. Um, So I'll just start reading from that passage. When Hamlet adopts a course of action intended to perform God's will, his approach operates on the assumption that his, quote, rough hewing lines up with God's plan. His belief that his rashness taps into a divine plan assumes an explicit theatrical analogy in his explanation of how he immediately springs into action upon discovering the substance of the king's commission.
0: Being thus benetted round with villainies, ere I could make a prologue to my brains, they had begun the play, I sat me down, devised a new commission, wrote it fair.
1: This description of taking instantaneous action without a prologue or preceding outline confers agency onto an ambiguous they, which ostensibly refers to Hamlet's brains, but also seems to subsume his individual agency within a larger plot or script that carries his actions forward. The syntactic interruption between, quote, they had begun the play and, quote, I sat me down suggests an understanding of his role as that of an actor performing in someone else's script. In a sense, he construes the sea as God's theater, in which he struggles to inhabit his proper role. But because God's providence is inaccessible, Hamlet finds himself in a position comparable to an actor without a script, who is thus dependent upon improvisation and gut feeling or instinct. He describes to Horatio how he is helped along by ensuing coincidences that suggest evidence of a divine intervention. A particular stroke of luck that Hamlet perceives to serve him in rewriting Claudius's commission is the fact that he still remembers how to write in a, quote, fair hand, despite his his having, quote, labored much how to forget that learning, end quote, because it is associated with, quote, a baseness beneath his noble rank that Hamlet also chances to have his father's signet in his purse, quote, the model of the Danish seal, end quote, provides final proof to him that, quote, heaven is ordinate, end quote, in rewriting and resealing, in the rewriting and resealing of Claudius's commission. I'm just going to skip ahead a little. Ultimately, by holding in suspense the question of whether Hamlet rightly accesses and interprets divine will, the play demonstrates how providential meaning coheres in the human act of narrativizing worldly events. Caught in the confusion between fortune and providence, the play draws our attention to the role of human action to close the gap between the two. It demonstrates how action is predicated upon processes of discernment and narrative, which in Hamlet's case, interpret coincidences to be meaningful signs of divine ordinance. Thus, at the same time that Hamlet understands himself to be an actor within a predetermined script, his sea voyage serves as the setting for decisive action on his part, which he undertakes to write the, quote, outrageous fortune, end quote, that has brought him to sea in the first place. In other words, it is during Hamlet's sea voyage that he chooses, quote, to take arms against the sea of trouble, end quote, rather than to patiently suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, end quote. By raising the possibility that taking arms might not align with God's will, the play demonstrates how improper discernment might lead to tragic repercussions.
0: Thank you for that. I mean, two things jump out to me about this passage. One is the balancing of um, of textual citation and analysis, um, and second is the way you kind of carefully build up that that connection between providential scripts and a theatrical script in a way that feels really organic to the passage. It feels well-earned in the passage. Um, how do you go about crafting uh, academic prose like this? Um, do you have certain uh, guidelines that you follow? Um, do you have a, a revision process that you uh, trust in?
1: Yeah, well, I think that close reading is a a love of mine. And it's something that I always like to start with. Well, what are the words, what are the words that we're thinking about and and looking at, what do they mean? Um, and then I'm also thinking about theatricality and staging and, and those kinds of questions. But, um, I guess when it comes to interpreting passages and, um, the challenges, I guess, of, um, kind of looking for meaning beneath what the actual words might seem to be saying on their surface. Um, the, the concept of rough hewing actually kind of comes to mind for me uh, as a kind of a, a metaphor also maybe for uh, for for close reading in a way. Um, you sort of start out with a, a kind of um, rough uh, sort of shaping and then at the same time that you're kind of maybe you know, hacking away a little bit at something or digging into something, you know, a shape starts to emerge also, like, uh, of its own accord. Um, And um, there's a way in which there's something intuitive at work here. um, But at the same time, there's kinds of concrete skills, I guess, that as literary critics. Um, we bring to this process uh, in terms of our understanding of words and their etymologies and our understanding of language and and figurative language and uh, the tools that we have at our disposal in in terms of um, for use in interpreting these things. Um, So it's a combination of of there's there's a kind of like um, sort of a, a process that involves skill um, and something you can learn to do, but there's also uh, some kind of intuitive and, and kind of like feeling um, that is uh, that that helps you kind of find your way. And and sometimes it, the meanings uh, that um, come to you are are not just meanings. Hopefully, they're not just meanings you're imposing, but they're ones that are in there that are that are struggling, you know, to come back to to come out to the surface um, to make themselves known.
0: In your acknowledgements, you talk about the value of the writing groups that you've participated in. Can you talk about how those communities have enriched your writing and your writing practice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. For me, being part of a writing group has been completely indispensable to my writing process. Um, So at UMass, uh, I'm very lucky to have a writing group called Third Space, which is explicitly for uh, writers of color, scholars of color. And um, the, we meet online and we're, it's completely uh, cross-disciplinary. So uh, it's a great opportunity to also meet other scholars uh, across the university who I otherwise wouldn't have the, had the opportunity to meet. And there's something about all of us coming together, working on our own scholarship, Doing all different kinds of projects, but all with the same goal of uh, trying to get our writing done, valuing that work, and supporting one another in that uh, shared enterprise. And um, the bonds that I think were that form through this collaborative writing with people who are at first strangers, but then you know really come to be collaborators in a sense. Um, are just so powerful and so enabling. And I think particularly uh, for uh, people of color who I think we face uh, certain kinds of unique challenges um, when it comes to professional um, this profession that we're in and, and to professional scholarship and working with people who understand that and who can support uh, you through it, I think is, is really rare and incredibly valuable. Um, for me, the writing process was one where I also got to know myself in a new way because you spend a lot of time, uh, on your own, you know, no matter how great your writing group is. Um, and it's worth saying also that I had other writing partners who I worked with, uh, one on one over the course of the project too. And, uh, those people were also people who were friends, um, a couple of them dating back to my graduate school years at Penn, um, very sustaining, um, relationships that were kind of like oxygen to my writing process as well. Um, but, uh, going back to this, uh, way in which how writing is ultimately, uh, in, in, in some major ways, quite a solitary undertaking, um, you do, um, you do kind of get to know yourself in a new way, at least I did. And and because you're forced to kind of dig deep, you know, and you're really forced to be disciplined. Uh, I always tell my students uh, how important it is to develop a writing practice where you write every day. And, um, you know, I find that over time, that becomes a kind of gift that you actually give yourself. It, it seems a struggle at first. And I'm the first person to admit that, staring at a blank page or a blank screen can be like really intimidating and scary and uh you know something that can be uh you know almost make you want to just you know slam your computer shut and run away you know um it's much easier once you have some words on the page um but at the same time um the challenge and then you know kind of the rewards of meeting that challenge Um, really do teach you about uh, how important your own goals are, you know, in driving your process and being in touch with those goals, being in touch with, you know, why is it that I want to write this book? Um, Why is it important? What I want to say? What exactly is it that I want to say? You know, addressing those very basic questions um, are ones that can be very very rewarding, very clarifying, uh, you know, in ways that go beyond, you know, the actual book itself.
0: I like how in Globalizing Fortune, there is a heterodoxy in the literary texts you choose to work with. The first chapter focuses on Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus and Green's Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, which are not typically thought of as being about world history and commerce. Um what do these plays reveal about early modern thinking uh, about the succession of empires and the role of human agency in world history?
1: Yes, um, I like how you're picking up on uh, the heterodoxy in this uh, choice of texts. Uh, I hadn't intended it necessarily that way, but I like that it's being received in that way. Um, I think that, these two plays, the ones that you referenced, Dr. Faustus and uh, Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, are plays that others have thought about, other critics have thought about together and associated with one another because they're, plays about, they're both plays about magicians, and they're also plays that were closely contemporary with one another. Um, but I think that these ways of reading those plays, these ways of approaching that, those plays, um, sometimes become so... Uh, kind of ingrained that we, that, that they can blind us to other, uh, other kinds of topics, other interests in the plays that are in fact, you know, quite obvious even. Um, and so whether, wh- while it might seem quite, um, original or, or to go against the grain to talk about Dr. Faustus, um, and not really talk about, uh, magic or not really talk about the Reformation as lots of scholars have done, um, or at least not talk about the, Re- the Reformation um, in terms of theological debate and and its kinds of spiritual implications. Um, while that might seem to really go against the grain, I think that um, it's actually what I'm trying to do is pick up on a lot of the other discourse running through that play and also through Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay that references global trade and commodities. Um, One example that comes uh, quickly to mind is when Faustus conjures the grapes for the pregnant Duchess. And at the time grapes were a kind of uh, imported luxury commodity. In many cases, Faustus's motivations are often explicitly tied to the lore of exotic commodities and to global trade. He says things like, Oh, I'll have my spirits fly to India for gold and ransack the ocean for Orient pearl. And in Fire Bacon and Fire Bungay, Prince Edward is always trying to woo Margaret, the fair maid of Freshingfield, by flaunting his wealth um and his access to global commerce and at the end of the play king henry hosts the sumptuous sumptuous banquet that displays england's access to imported goods from all over the world so a way uh, of kind of um establishing and showing off um you know how england is becoming this uh, country that is a uh, kind of on the world stage um so I think while it can be easy to overlook these trap, these kinds of trappings, I think it's also striking. Um, and these plays concern with global trade speaks back to another shared concern they have with the fluctuations of empire over the course of world history, which follow a pattern of translatio imperii, a narrative imp- of imperial succession that transferred power temporarily temporally and spatially, from east to west, a kind of passing of the torch. For the English, understanding the past through this historiographical structure allowed them to interpret or reinterpret their belatedness and past history of imperial subjugation, that is their history of being colonized by larger empires. Um, They were able to reinterpret this history um, as part of a larger pattern of succession Wherein the torch, uh, imperial um, kinds of power would somehow, would someday be passed on to them. And I demonstrate how these plays latch on to the idea that commercial expansion through global trade offers a new kind of opportunity for England to take their rightful place as the next inheritor of world empire, while at the same time registering the sense that the course of world empire. Is something that's always fluctuating, and even so-called spiritual movements like the Reformation are actually part of this process of uh, imperial cycling and fluctuation. Um, that is, uh, in in many ways, um, more uh, political than it is a, a spiritual kind of process.
0: Probably many listeners who work outside the early modern period have never heard of Thomas Haywood's Fair Maid of the West, which happens to be this great, rollicking, deeply weird play. Um, Let's remedy that in this uh, conversation. What's Fair Maid of the West about, and what does it have to say about fortune in the context of global commerce and empire?
1: Yeah, well, Fair Maid of the West, there's two parts of that play, uh, Fair Maid of the West Part One and Fair Maid of the West Part Two, and they're both great. Um, I talk in my book about Fair Maid of the West Part One, um, which was a play that was performed around the year 1600. And it is a really fun play, as you say. It's kind of um, wild and rollicking, and it's got this fantastic heroine named Bess Bridges who is a low-born barmaid from a provincial town in England who takes to the seas and she becomes a wealthy privateer over time and a kind of paragon of English heroism. Um, And over the course of the play, she circulates through a global economy and plunders Spanish ships for gold and negotiates with the king of Morocco and... Uh, models, different forms of uh, physical heroism for her, um, for her shipmates who are, um, in some cases, not, not quite yet up to the task of English empire. Um, and all the while in doing this, she never compromises her sexual chastity. Um, although she does go so far as to kiss the king of Morocco. Um, she doesn't go further than that, though. Um, so it's, it's sort of titillating, um, and at the same time, there's a kind of um, safety uh, and assurance that's being reinforced through this play that England can go out there in the world, um, even this kind of vulnerable Um, virginal lass, you know, out on the high seas, unprotected, um, and do the work of empire and not compromise herself um, in the process. Um, And this also, um, incidentally, kind of spoke back to or resonated with um, fears at the time that had to do with um, the circulation of currency and the debasement um, uh, the fears about the, the kind of debasement of English currency that um, could result as a as a result of global circulation cir- as a result of global circulation. Um, so the play was sort of uh, so the play was answering these anxieties by showing us uh, reassuring us that um, circulation would would in fact not lead to debasement and corruption or devaluation. Um, And then in in broader ways, the play, I think, models a kind of ethical pursuit of fortune, which many of the plays that I'm talking about seem to be quite invested in that challenge. You know, how can fortune, uh, opportunism, enrichment be pursued in ways that were Ethical, And one of the ways it does this by is by endorsing things like prudent decision making and effective labor and sexual restraint, um, which are things that can help to morally navigate the fluctuations of fortune within a specifically global economy, uh, a broad economy where there's lots of risk and lots of uh, exposure to um, to to. different cultures and and different kinds of people and different dangers and so forth. Um, I actually begin this chapter with a discussion of the frontispiece to John Dee's compendium on the art of navigation, which features Queen Elizabeth sitting in the helm of a merchant ship and holding the rudder. And in the text that accompanies um, this uh, or, or that speaks to this image, Dee explicitly associates Queen Elizabeth's reign with that figure of lady occasion, um, a figure of fortune, um, that advocates for grabbing that long lock of hair that flows out from lady occasions, um, forehead by taking advantage of the opportunity for England to recover its lost inheritance by building a commercial empire. And in Haywood's play, the heroine Bess is identified with Queen Elizabeth in in some instances uh, fairly explicitly and, of course, shares her commitment to chastity. So this chaste heroine who circulates widely all over the world without compromising her chastity addresses fears um, about uh, circulation and about uh, the kinds of risks that uh, and, and contact, intercultural contact that that England um, needs to engage with uh, as it's uh, starting to become or aspiring to become an English empire, and, and maybe more importantly um, than that, even it models this message that it's okay to get rich, you can make a fortune and still be a moral and deserving person. Um, in fact, uh, maybe there's a kind of message that by being a moral and deserving person, the right kind of moral and deserving person, you, you will get rich. Um, so the play in this way is is invested in purifying the pursuit of gold. And uh, in addition, I think it has it has something pretty interesting to tell us about the history of whiteness. Uh, I, I didn't mention this, but. Uh, the best is, uh, I mean, you can, the title of the play is The Fair Maid of the West. Um, she's, uh, her fairness, her beauty, uh, but also her whiteness is, is emphasized as, um, as uh, kind of important characteristics that she has. And I think this play has something to tell us about how the history of whiteness um, plays into this um, project of redefining fortune as uh, a kind of uh, morally deserved um, uh, kind of um, enrichment or um, morally deserved, um, I don't know, how should I say it? Like a a kind of um, a a morally deserved um, outcome in one's life.
0: A kind of uh, early modern, like prosperity gospel sort of thing, right? Um,
1: Yeah.
0: In it's kind of long afterlife. Um, we we sort of still see that a uh, connection between um, religious or spiritual um, views and uh, capitalists yeah. attain uh, accumulation, right?
1: Yeah, I feel capitalism. Um, yeah, it continues to sustain this this myth or fantasy that uh, when you get rich, it's because you deserve to get rich. It's because you worked hard. Um, yeah, it's not it's not just luck.
0: Uh, I was drawn to an interesting moment um, in your analysis of uh, of The Merchant of Venice. Um, You talk about uh, the way Shylock views fortune and the way that play is racializing his understanding of fortune through his reading of biblical history. Um, it's a scene that's, that's meta, that's asking us to think about textuality and interpretation, which I think is uh, very fruitful for your argument. Um, can you talk about Shylock's understanding of, of this moment in biblical history and um, how the play might be encouraging us? to think his interpretation is faulty in some kind of way?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think that one of the really interesting things about The Merchant of Venice is the way that it stages various tests of fortune. So things like commercial venturing and sea travel travel or risky in, wagers, investments, lotteries, um, and then even the use of disguise and performance. It stages these things as though they are... Um, test of fortune where anything can happen uh, and where everybody sort of got an equal, uh, you know, kind of chance in terms of the outcome of the of these games or tests when really I think there are veils very often for human machination that takes place behind the scenes. And I I think this is a phenomenon that, again, like still persists in today's world um, where Um, things are sort of staged as uh, it's fair for everyone. Everyone's got an equal chance. Um, And, and maybe even there's merit, you know, these things are tests of true merit, but at the same time, you know, anyone can win. And yet, they're, they're rigged in a way. And um, somehow, you know, the winners always seem to be certain kinds of people and the losers seem to be other kinds of people. Um, So in the merchant of Venice, um, I think that uh, the play is um, very invested in uh, rewarding what seems to be a willingness to venture or take big risks and be willing to lose everything. And that becomes a kind of moral virtue that, that, um, kind of willingness to, um, you know, just jump into, you know, a, an adventure without knowing the outcome and um, to risk everything. And I think that that is one of the chief ways in which the play racializes, the, the di- comes to racialize the difference between Christians and Jews, um, and the, the racialization of Shylock in this regard is is so interesting to me. Um, you referred to the uh, that passage where Shylock is interpreting, um, he, he's referencing the, the biblical story of Jacob and Laban um, as a way of justifying uh, the practice of charging interest. And it, it's a really interesting moment to me because uh, it shows us how it's his interpretation uh, of that passage um, that comes to inform a kind of racial distinction um, between Jews and Christians. Um, his This interpretation that he has, uh, ultimately, I think what it does is it associates him with a certain affective disposition that is given to thrift and that is given to... Um, you know, being overly careful, um, and, and a kind of aversion to taking risk. Um, and so it, 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 shows us, uh, I think in important ways, um, the ways that fortune, um, starts to emerge as a, as a racializing discourse in the period. Um, that's one of the, one of the, um, more negative ways in which it, um, it, it gets manifested, Um, and, um, as I had said earlier in our conversation, like there's, you know, sometimes there's positive, uh, ways in which we can look at, um, fortune and sometimes, um, we're really rooting for characters, like maybe like best bridges in certain, in certain ways, um, who are kind of underdogs or who are, uh, female characters. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're rooting for them or like Marina and Pericles, um, to, um, you know, take control of their lives and um, to be rewarded for that. But in, in other cases, um, we see uh, how fortune participates in how that racializing discourse is one that sort of has two sides to it. Um,
0: so globalizing fortune is out there in the world. It's fresh off the presses. Um, but you already have a project lined up for 2023, a special issue of the Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies. Can you tell us uh, what that issue is contributing uh, to this scholarly conversation and maybe an overview of um, the the contents of the issue?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. So that issue is one that I have co-edited with Ben Van Wagner. And it's worth saying that collaboration is one of the things I'm really kind of turning my attention to now that I've completed Globalizing Fortune, and I'm really enjoying uh, a couple of different collaborative projects that I've been working on. So the issue of the Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies is on the topic of local oceans, Mm -hmm. new perspectives on colonial geographies. And what it's interested in is addressing the question of what it means to take a local oceanic perspective to uh, different kinds of colonial relationships and encounters that take place in different site-specific parts of the world, mostly non-Western places. And so some of the places that, uh, for example, the authors have written on are Early modern Formosa, which is modern-day Taiwan, uh, or the Coromandel Coast of India, and it's. I should mention the contributors to the volume, who are Carol Peary, Shweta Ragu, Robin Kilo, Carmen Carmen Nocentelli, and Alexander Lash, and uh, and afterwards written by Barbara Fuchs. And what I what we mean by perspectives is quite literally. Uh, what does it mean to to kind of zero in on different vantage points and different angles uh, of viewing uh, in within uh, the ocean uh, to to think about uh, colonial encounters in this way? So the view from the deck of a ship, as opposed to the view from the shoreline, is something that uh, Shweta Raghu takes up in her in her piece. Uh, which is also interested in the difference between a saltwater versus a freshwater perspective. Um, so that's a kind of example of what we mean by perspective. Um, Archipelago uh, perspective is another one uh, that gets taken out by Carol Peary in her piece. And um, in more generally, I think that um, what we're interested in is Uh, Sort of supplementing the eco-critical approach to oceans by thinking about uh, how perspective and in particular very local, uh, not necessarily Western perspectives um, might shift our understanding of the kind of political and economic and uh, imperial um, relationships um, that uh, characterized colonialism in the early modern period. And this is sort of 16th, 17th, and even early 18th centuries that, the, uh, that this issue was spanning.
0: You also have another collaborative project, uh, a, a book project that takes up the idea of worlds, can you tell us about that project, uh, which uh, an excerpt um, on the comedy of errors was published in Exemploria,
1: right? Yes, exactly. So this book is a book that, again, is a collaborative project that I'm writing with Henry Turner. And I'm glad that you say the word worlds instead of worlds, because That is one of our chief investments in the book is uh, taking a pluralistic approach to world making and kind of grounding that approach in the early modern period and in the works of Shakespeare, but also spanning outward from there. And I think it's worth saying that uh, our thinking for the book. Was seeded by considerations of uh, kind of other intertextual relationships that could be possible between Shakespeare and then more contemporary writers of today who are also interested in uh, the speculative world-making potential of fiction. So these would be writers like Ruth Ozeki, Mohsin Hamid, Louise Erdrich, Helen Oyeyemi, and Dionne Brand, Um, and sort of using these intertextual comparisons as uh sources for inspiration. Um, and so I think what's another thing that is is really core to us in terms of how we're approaching the idea of worlds is by really blowing open the question of what can a, what it can a world be, what can a world mean? Uh, and um not so so in a way writing against or thinking against the idea that world is globe. And one of the things that was really interesting for us to observe early on is that in Shakespeare's plays, the world globe figures very, very few times. So I think it's only like three times, whereas the word world is like over 600 times it's used in the plays and, and used in the plays in, to have me- in ways that has have many different meanings. Uh, so to give you just one brief example of, um, a, a different way in which world can be defined is um, through cosmology, uh, which is very different from the idea of a mappable globe. Instead, it's thinking about how uh, world is part of a larger cosmology. Uh, we're interested in the concept of a metaverse even, um, but you know, sort of a very expansive kind of context for thinking about world and, and also thinking about Governing principles or um, ordering principles uh, for cosmology and ways in which um, that we we might this might lead us to think beyond uh, kind of imperialistic models for thinking about world uh, ones that we more often associate with European humanism or with a figure like Prospero, um, to think instead about relational kinds of cosmologies, one which ones which were, are more oriented around harmony than around hierarchy. Uh, so for that, I've turned to ancient Stoicism and ancient Buddhism uh, for, for models um, and, and sources that I think are also informative of uh, European humanism, although not always recognized uh, to be informing um those narratives. So um yeah, I guess and, and lastly I would say that some of the concepts that have helped to animate our thinking and structure our thinking in writing this book are concepts like between. Um, and I think you you referenced uh the article that we published uh in Exemplaria which was drawn from the work that we're doing for this book on the concept of betweenness or what it feels like to be between worlds. And that piece is focused on the comedy of errors, Um, but we're also looking at the concept of belonging and the concept of kind as a kind of structuring or ordering principle, um, and the concept of horizon as a a concept that captures um, both temporal and spatial um, movement. So, um, yeah, in a nutshell, that's some of what what we're interested in in that book.
0: Excellent. We will keep our eyes open for those projects. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jane.
1: Thanks so much for having me, John.